We're now going to have our Bible reading this morning, and that can be found in the book of Acts, and it's chapter 13, um, starting at verse 1 for five verses. And the passage is entitled, Barnabas and Saul Sent Off. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manon, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. And John was with them as their helper. I'd now like to invite David up to explain a bit about that passage for us. And I'll just pray for you, David, as you come. Father, we thank you for David this morning. We thank you for the word that you have placed on his heart to share with us. And I just pray that in this time together, we would all receive a blessing from you, including David, but also learn something more of who you are and the wonder of your creation and how you live and move through us. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for the um, privilege um, and the invitation to be here again uh, this morning. The congregation's got bigger every time I've been here. That has got nothing to do with me. I appreciate that. <laughs> <clears throat> but thank you for the privilege that you've, you've given to me. In 2013, a new word was added to the Oxford English Dictionary, the word selfie. This modern cultural phenomenon associated with the global rise of the ownership of the mobile phone, because we're all amateur photographers these days, ready at a moment's notice to record our image against a multiplicity of backdrops. <clears throat> As some of you can see in the sanctuary, I uh, recently took a selfie with my new uh, office clock behind me. Uh, beside my cheesy grin, uh, the numbers on the face of the timepiece are all a jumbled mess at the bottom. And so when I'm ever tempted to inquire of the time, uh, I'm reminded simply to say to myself, who cares? I'm retired. <clears throat> now that is an image that may... Um, tell you a number of significant things about me, uh, perhaps among others, that my youthful good looks belie my actual age, that secondly, um, my concern for good timekeeping is probably questionable, um, which is a troubling thought I understand for most congregations at the start of a sermon, and, and thirdly, that my sense of humor uh, will not be to everybody's taste. Well, today, I thought we might take a look at a scriptural snapshot of the first century church uh, in Antioch, as recorded by Luke. Uh, think of it as a word picture equivalent of a cell phone image, uh, detailed in the opening uh, five verses of Acts 13, which Bev's just read, uh, read to us. <clears throat> a portrait from which we can also learn at least three um, or make three conclusions concerning this first century church, namely a pattern, a principle, and a priority 
um, that marked out the life of this uh, first century church together, which arguably uh, should also match the image of church life in the 21st century. Here is a selfie of the church, if you like, uh, which might cause us to ask ourselves the question, is that what we really look like? <clears throat> so in, if we regard this picture of the fellowship in Antioch as a potential biblical template for our own, Luke's snapshot brings these three characteristics of the church into sharp focus, which despite the centuries that separate us, should, I believe, typify the church in every generation. Here's the first. Let's look at the pattern. We are to be a diverse community. That's the pattern. Look at the opening verse of our reading. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, you could hardly list a, a more mixed or miscellaneous assembly of people on the fingers of one hand, racially, culturally, socially, intellectually, spiritually, they were the human equivalent of a box of licorice all sorts. Barnabas was a rural rustic. He was a Mediterranean islander. He was a Cypriot landowner. Simeon was a black African, hence his nickname, Niger. It comes from a Latin word meaning dark of color. So perhaps he was Sudanese or Ethiopian. Most probably he was a slave, or at least of slave descent. Then there's Lucius. Now that's our author's namesake, Luke. He was from Cyrene, uh, which is modern-day Libya, suggesting that he was probably a merchant plying his wares between um, North Africa and uh, this part of um, the Eastern Mediterranean. And then there was Menaean, who was a minor aristocrat. Luke informs us that he was related to Herod Antipater, uh, one of um, Herod the Great's sons, sometimes simply called Antipas, uh, who got to govern Galilee and Perea, uh, which was one-fourth of his dead dad's political empire, hence the title Tetrarch, meaning ruler of a quarter. And finally, there's Saul, a university-educated Jewish academic, formerly zealous, ultra-conservative Pharisee, a tent-maker by trade. But who would put that hodgepodge of humanity in the same room and expect them to come up with a coherent leadership team? But that's exactly what happened in Antioch under the influence and inspiration, the authority and the encouragement of Christ by his spirit. And one might reasonably assume what was true of this quintet of Christians catalogued by Luke in verse 1 must have been representative of the wider fellowship of believers in that place from which they were drawn. And in this regard, I would suggest to you that Antioch provides a prototype of that which Christ and his gospel 
can achieve in every church. For unity in diversity, value in variety, should be the pattern of every church. I remind you, Jesus has already called together uh, a disparate assortment of disciples when he summoned those first followers into a fellowship of believers. We call them the 12 apostles. Unlike this group in Antioch, uh, they did all share a common ethnicity. They were all Jews. But temperamentally, they were another box of licorice all sorts. Think of the hothead like Peter. Mustard with a contemplative like Nathaniel. Or a toadying tax collector by the name of Matthew who is linked with a sort of political zealot, at least that was his nickname, Zelotes, Simon. Then there was the hesitant doubter like Thomas, who is allied with a decisive thinker like John. This pattern of calling into community, a rag, tag, and bobtail bunch, seems to be characteristic of the game plan of Jesus for his people. Therefore, belonging and esteem in the church ought not to be a matter of our social background or our public status, our educational achievement or lack of it, the color of our skin or our cultural heritage, our financial resources or our personal pedigree. God, whose spiritual summons calls us together as a people for his purposes in a particular place, be that in Antioch in Syria in the first century or Norwich in Norfolk in the 21st century, desires to mold us into a fellowship that can be a microcosm of the community in which we are set with all its diversity and difference. In order to show to a watching world how we can, in the words of Paul to the church in Galatia, be all one in Christ Jesus. Too often, community is dependent upon uniformity. Each week on the football terraces up and down the land, people kitted out in commonly colored clothing, sporting shared insignia emblazoned on scarves and shirts, even on skin sometimes, chanting the same slogans, supporting the same sporting heroes, discover the unity of uniformity. Now, for all the undoubted pleasure gained by such mutual appreciation, collective commitment to a common cause, it is not the pattern that is seen in the opening sentence of Acts 13. Nor is it a unity based on mere tolerance of racial, cultural, social, or intellectual difference. Nor even a more complex unity based on an understanding that such differences may potentially enrich human interactions. Rather, it is one which has discovered and now embraces a deeper truth. 
namely that God in Christ by his spirit can alone enable us to find not only joy in difference and delight in diversity, but genuinely to appreciate that without variety, humanity cannot experience the blessing of complementarity. I wonder if, uh, Bev, you might let me have my glass of water. Thank you. Thank you so much. <clears throat> Been singing so much behind the mask, I'm afraid I've dried up all my um, saliva. God wants us to discover in Jesus the essence of genuine harmony that is grounded in God's grace, that is forged in his forgiveness and bought at measureless cost by his son on Calvary's cross. What enabled this utterly sundry selection of souls in Antioch to find common purpose, whether it was in leadership or in membership, was their recognition that God had called them out to be together by his spirit, summoned to be together, to worship together, to work together, to witness together, whatever else might tend to divide them or separate or segregate them. Luke has a word for them. He calls them an ecclesia. It's translated in most English translations by the word church. Although actually our English word church comes from a, another Greek word, kuriakos, meaning belonging to the Lord. This term, ecclesia, literally means called out from. Actually, Greeks used it in the first century to refer to public meetings that were convened for citizens. In the book of Acts that Luke is writing in that language, uh, Koine Greek, in 19 occasions it's translated church, but in Acts 19, you might be interested to know, it's used to describe a riotous mob whipped up by um, a bunch of aggrieved silversmiths in Ephesus. In verse 32, we read this, the ecclesia, the assembly, not church, but hear the word church if you like, was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. Now, as a by the by, I've been at one or two church meetings where that sort of uh, description might have been true for those present. But Luke was happy to adopt this familiar term to describe Christian gatherings, assemblies of the followers of Jesus, despite the secular connotations. Why? Because he knew that the believers in Antioch were also constituted as a called out community. But for them, the one who was doing the calling, the summoning to assembly, the convening was Jesus himself by his spirit. Together, the church of Christ is a people called out by him from the world to find and fulfill the plans and the purposes of God as revealed in the scripture, as seen in the Savior, and as empowered by the Spirit. And whilst the exact dimensions and features of each Christian community will differ from place to place and from generation to generation, this pattern reflected in the church in Antioch 
where unity was found in diversity, forged by their sense of a common calling from Jesus to be his followers in a particular place is, I would judge, one that should be normal, indeed normative, for churches in every place and in each generation. So there we have it, the pattern. We are to be a diverse community. Think with me a second about the principle. We are to be a directed community. Read again verses 2 to 4. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. The experience of the church in Antioch was that the Holy Spirit speaks and the Holy Spirit sends. And this too, I believe, represents an abiding principle that should remain true for each church in every age. And precisely because the Spirit of Christ communicates and commissions, the church must live in anticipation of and in submission to his direction. In other words, the corollary to this behavior of the Spirit, this ministry uh, of the Spirit in the midst of Christ's people, is that we should be a people who listen for the Spirit's voice and then stand ready to respond to the Spirit's leading, whatever that is. But one important lesson revealed in this little selfie of the church in this passage of Scripture is that this direction, this guidance, this governance rarely happens in a vacuum. I remind you that Luke tells us that it was while the church were worshipping the Lord and fasting that the Holy Spirit said. God does speak to his people. It's one of the great wonders of the Christian faith that the one who made us deigns and indeed delights to speak to us. The God revealed in the scriptures doesn't live in divine incommunicado, unknown and unknowable silent and inscrutable. Indeed, we owe our very existence to the fact that God's voice rang out in creative power at the dawn of time and space. And God said, let there be light. And from that formative and foundational moment on, the voice of God continues to be heard in revelatory purpose, he wants his human children to hear him and thus to know him. Our God speaks. Indeed, believers have come to know that the one, uh, one of Christ's most precious names is the Word. John's Gospel begins, doesn't it? In the beginning was Hologos, the Word. And the Word got fleshed out, he says a bit later. Thus, Christ's children should live not just in the hope, but in the expectation and anticipation that he desires and determines by his spirit to communicate his will and his word. And that's what we see happening in Antioch. 
Indeed, in the language in which Luke writes, this sense of what is occurring here is even more apparent in a couple of ways. First, if you'll forgive me, there is a, a little two-letter word in the original language that's left untranslated in most English translations, a bit unfortunately. It's a little participle, it's the word day. Now, linguistically, it's there to give emphasis, to give urgency, to give precision to the verb that precedes it. If you want it in the Greek, it's aphorosate day moi ton barnaban kai saulon. And whilst it won't result in good English, let me give you, try to give you a sense of that phrase, how it actually reads, set apart indeed for me, Barnabas and Saul, or commission, so then, for me, Barnabas and Saul. You see, what that extra little word there helps the reader or the listener to hear more clearly is this. When the Holy Spirit does speak directly, it is to make emphatic and explicit what we must assume was already an emerging notion in the church, namely that he was indeed wanting them to do something new in respect of their future direction. In fact, it seems that it was precisely because of this embryonic awareness that the fellowship at Antioch had made this as yet uncertain, indeterminate purpose, a matter of express, worshipful devotion and focused, targeted prayer, to which end they'd also been fasting. They were convinced that the time during which they might normally have been um, drinking and eating should be given over to seeking and praying and any believer that is serious about seeking the mind of God on important and strategic issues especially affecting the future of a fellowship will prove the earnest of their intent by making extra time to pray privately and collectively for the spirit of God to be heard speaking but there's a further, further aspect of the language that Luke uses which underlines the lesson we're addressing, namely that it's an axiomatic principle of the church that we must be a directed community. For we read the Holy Spirit said. Now that seems an innocent and innocuous word. But actually it comes from a verb that could be translated answered or even commanded. Indeed, whenever the Spirit speaks in the Bible, it's rarely to pass the time of day or to engage in social chit-chat, as far as I can see. But rather it is to reveal God's will, to issue God's orders. And since the Spirit's words are clearly set in the context of the church's worship, it would be quite reasonable to say that it represented the Spirit's answer. Now, admittedly, we haven't yet heard that question articulated, but the fact that the church was seeking the mind of God in worship and in prayer makes their inquiry implicit in their actions. But be that as it may, what is beyond doubt, the Spirit's words represented a command. Luke puts the word in what's called the imperative mood, set apart, commission, assign. There is a must about what the Spirit is requiring them to do. The book's no cavil, no quibble, no questioning. It is the equivalent of a commanding officer issuing marching orders to frontline troops. 
that it's not to be regarded as the kind of ad hoc remark of a passing stranger recommending a new brand, uh, brand of washing powder to a fellow customer in the, in the local, local supermarket. Here then was a gathering of believers who were open to hear the voice of God. They understood that it was a dynamic two-way relationship with him. They were not only ready to speak to him in praise and in prayer, but to hear from him. Indeed, they had an expectation that he would do so. Therefore, they read the scriptures. Their leadership team expounded, explained, and encouraged them from God's word. In fact, Luke tells us in this verse, there were prophets and teachers. This was their forte in the leadership. And because the fellowship, it seems, had a collective had collectively felt a sense that the Lord was wanting to do something new and special for them, they'd made extra time and taken specific effort for worship and intercession, showing both the earnest of their intent and their giving a practical demonstration of their commitment to waiting for his answer and obeying his instruction when he made it plain. Don't miss out on the week of prayer this week, will you? Indeed, it's actually arguable that maybe Barnabas and Saul had themselves already perceived, were already beginning to ponder a growing consciousness of the call of God on their lives, to further the cause of Christ in fresh ways. Luke has told us back in chapter 9 that Saul was God's man, his chosen instrument to proclaim his name among the Gentiles. Well, at least that's what he told Ananias, and I, I guess this man of God didn't keep that to himself. And we know that Barnabas actually went out of his way to bring Saul to Antioch. He was prepared already to work in partnership. The twin aspects of this principle, that the church must be a directed community, are therefore to be manifested in openness and in obedience. In openness. There must be a genuine readiness, indeed eagerness, to listen to and to listen for his word individually and collectively. To have an expectation that God does and will speak to his people, to give time and opportunity to enable this to happen, privately and publicly, seeking to ensure that this is soaked in reverent worship and immersed in fervent intercession. And then spirit-led churches will become incubators of emerging ministry and service. And led by him, they will produce a spiritual atmosphere where it will be natural and normal for growing believers to surrender to God's call upon their lives. However, we're also helped to realize here that whilst an individual or two may be personally prompted, particularly in a particular direction, that when that impacts the entire fellowship, some decisions must rightly come under the authority and the scrutiny of the whole church. To accept that it would be unwise for anyone to come to such a major conclusion unless the Holy Spirit himself endorsed individual feelings, private intuitions. But as well as openness, there must be obedience so after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now, knowing what followed, 
we might reasonably ponder the cost to Barnabas and Saul in taking this step of obedience. Think about it. Arduous journeys around the Mediterranean, bodily privations, frequent dangers, social hostility, even familial estrangement. Eventually, in Paul's case, martyrdom. But consider also what this meant for the church from which they departed. Antioch had to be ready to part with two of their most gifted leaders and to begin to shoulder the responsibilities of being a sending church with the inevitable burden of showing ongoing practical prayerful support. Finding and fulfilling God's will is rarely a cost-free endeavor. Maybe that's why too many churches settle for simply cranking the handle annually, sticking to the known and the familiar, seem unprepared even to ask for fresh vision and purpose, let alone apply themselves to seeing such a thing realized. Or maybe it would be okay for a few gifted and enthusiastic individuals to try to push the boat out, to ponder and pontificate the possibility of pioneer mission, but for the rest of us, we'll sit back and watch it happen, if it happens. Which brings us to a last lesson, very swiftly. The priority. We are to be a dedicated community. Look at the last two verses. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Now that last reference isn't to John the Apostle, but to John Mark, a young man. And with that addendum about a third person who was going to join this task team, for those who know what happened to this young man, we're introduced to an interesting subplot to this telling tale that Luke is unfolding. But it's going down by Path Meadow to say more. Rather, let us focus our final thoughts on part of the previous sentence. When they arrived, they proclaimed the word of God. Because with these words, we're confronted with the priority for every church in each ensuing age. Our God-given mandate is global mission. And precedence must be given to the proclamation of God's word. Now, probably we immediately think that proclamation is simply a synonym for preaching. And indeed it is. And without doubt, that is what this newly commissioned evangelistic task team did when they arrived in Salamis. They entered the various Jewish synagogues and preached. But I think it's instructive for us to note what the word actually used is. It isn't the word keroso, which is normally the word Luke might have used for preaching. It's a different word. It's katengalon. It literally means to bring the message down. No, we are preachers. We're not pundits, we're preachers. But the word that Luke uses here helps us to see something else which is important about the priority task of the church, which we might describe as earthing the meaning, helping to see, or the others to see, the relevance in their lives, in their felt and lived experience, what the word of God is. 
And you don't have to stand up behind a lectern with or without a fast emptying glass of water. To have any kind of gift of formal preaching, to be able to bring the message down, to be able to earth that message in other people's experience and life. We can be conduits of divine truth. We should be conduits of divine truth. And this is the task to which the church, collectively, all of us, must be dedicated as a priority. And because our mission is about earthing the evangel, clothing the message in ways which will help our non-believing neighbours perceive better the importance and consequence of the gospel with which we are entrusted, that can be done through our lives as well as by our lips. Later on, Luke will tell us how this couple were in a prison cell singing. They weren't preaching, just singing. And something about their quality of life and the character of their Christianity, though that wasn't a word that the jailer outside would have known. But he saw Jesus. He heard Jesus. Somehow the message got brought down to his level. And the church must find ways of connecting and interacting with communities in which we are set. And the best place perhaps to begin is in those situations and settings where we have the most natural inroads. Now for this first century uh, task team, it was the synagogue. You could go anywhere in the world as a, as a Jew and enter a synagogue and even if they didn't know you from Adam, if you wanted to say something about God's word, you would probably be given opportunity to do so. And that's what they took. And many of those first century Jewish Christians went into the Knesset, to use the Hebrew word for the synagogue, their meeting places, and they brought the message down. Now, today our strategies and settings will be different. Though we too may begin our mission in those ready-made structures which are, of course, our modern-day equivalent of the synagogues of Salamis. But every church and every Christian needs to identify avenues and opportunities simply to touch the lives of others. Some of you young mums, every day you're stood outside of a school gate and you find yourself standing next to the same lady or gentleman and you've talked about the weather and you've talked about the new brand of washing powder in the supermarket. Maybe you can say something that will touch their experience because it's been true for you as a young mum. But this must be our priority. Proclaiming the word of God. Wherever we do it, however we do it, that is our concern, to bring the message down. We may not always get it right. Sometimes we may be more a hindrance than a help, as John Mark proved to be for a while. Mission isn't for the faint-hearted or the fickle-spirited. Dedication to this priority doesn't come easily. But this is what the church is called to be and to do by God, for Jesus, through his spirit. Let me end. A widowed farmer placed a notice in the Lonely Hearts column of his local newspaper. Quote, 55-year-old farmer seeks lady tractor owner with a view to matrimony. If interested, please attach a selfie with the tractor 
to your reply. With these words in Acts 13, God has posted a picture of the kind of bride suited to his son, showing us the nature of the church that will take forward his kingdom-building future plans. Our pattern to be as diverse as the community in which we're set, the principle to be directed by the Holy Spirit, our priority to be dedicated to earthing the message. By the mercy of God, may this church, may every church, better match this image which his word has set before us today. Amen.